Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Welcome, welcome, world changers. Yes, tonight is another Arab Shabbat. We have something scheduled here tonight that uh, I've been looking forward to. We have on schedule Dr. Jason A. Staples wrote this book here that I have in my hands, The Idea of Israel in Second Temple Judaism. Very, very interesting. For those of you who do not know uh, Dr. Staples, Dr. Jason A. Staples is an assistant teaching professor uh, in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at uh, North Carolina State University, uh, where he teaches courses on biblical literature, early Judaism, Christian origins, ethics, globalism, conflict, and various theoretical perspectives in the study of religion and society. So I am really, really excited to uh, uh, to, to have Dr. Staples on with this. I'll just put my, put my headphones on here while we're... All right, so um, Dr. Staples... I want everyone in the live chat to give Dr. Staples a very, very warm welcome. Dr. Staples. How, how are, are you? you? I'm, I'm, my many apologies for how I am here. I've been wrangling some uh, toddlers uh, and uh, the time got away from me just a little bit. <laughs> oh, no problem. No problem. Uh, good to see you. Uh, how are you doing? Um, I'm I'm a, I'm well as well as uh, as can be at the moment. So uh, I'm a week uh, re- removed from COVID. So it's uh, not the first go round with it, and I'm just glad to be on the other side at the moment. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah good to know that uh, you're pulling out of it well. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, just before I, I turn you loose, there, Doctor. Uh, now, um, how how do you prefer to be addressed? Please just call me Jason. Jason, okay. All right. Um, Okay, so we have here in the live chat, uh, we have uh, Fearfully Confident says, this will be awesome. Uh, Fearfully Confident also says, Shabbat Shalom, Dr. Staples. Great great deception also says, Shalom to you, uh, Jason. And... Uh, Cat Cool, it's a young man by the name of Matthew, says, uh, Shalom, Dr. Staples. Uh, One John says, Welcome, Dr. Uh, Caballero says, Welcome, Dr. Staples. Thank you for being here. Caballero. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Billy says, What's up, Doc? And uh, uh, Vinny says, uh, Shabbat Shalom. Welcome, Dr. Staples. So, yes. Um, amazing um i I just like i I shared earlier there i just i just um i just got your book actually just the other day and i just uh i'm i'm working on it and so it is it is a really amazing book so let let me just start with um like asking you like so what led you in the like how did you begin why did you choose to write about this topic (laughs) (laughs) oh well um uh, this goes back actually to about 2003. Uh, I was in a Hebrew Bible prophets class actually at uh, Florida State, and um, uh, one of the one of the requirements for that class, and this was an undergrad class, one of the requirements for that class was that you choose a prophet for the semester. Essentially, you choose one of the prophets that would be kind of your focus, your base of operations that you'd uh, wind up doing your final project uh, on, and you could do any number of things with that, but 
uh, anyway, I ended up focusing on Jeremiah and more specifically at the, in the book of consolation in, in Jeremiah where he's promising restoration and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the one section of Jeremiah where he's basically not telling everybody that they're, uh, uh, going to deservedly die very soon. Uh, so, uh, and you know, where he's not prophesying exile as it were. Um, so I spent some time there and one of the things that stood out to me and actually there were a couple things in uh in a, it was a one of the uh, books that we used for the class was a uh, was a book on the prophets as a uh survey book by Gordon McConville uh and uh there were a few things that stood out to me and and, and that he also brought up in that uh in that book and and basically there were there are a number of places where in particular in those sessions of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is promising uh, in explicit language. Uh, let's say in the new covenant promise, he says, uh, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, says, you know, I don't know, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I led them out of hand out of Egypt, which they broke, right? Uh, and then goes on from there. Well, the interesting thing there is that he says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that stood out to me. And, and McConville actually brought this up in, in, in his uh, little textbook there as well, where he said, you know, it's kind of interesting that he's saying this, uh, you know, that Jeremiah would be saying this 150 odd years after the destruction of the Northern kingdom of, of the house of Israel. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, okay, Israel will, et cetera. But, to say house of Israel and house of Judah is implying a reunion of the two of, of Northern and Southern kingdoms. And the Northern kingdom has essentially uh, been inoperative for a century and a half. I mean, you think about that in American terms that that takes you back to the civil war. It's a long time. Uh, so, or actually before it's pre-civil war. So, you know, that's a long time to be thinking about this and to still say, okay, well, there's going to be a restoration that involves them too. Uh, and then, uh, and so that stood out. And, and McConville, you know, observed this about several prophets. I mean, second Isaiah, uh, you know, the chapters in Isaiah that are dealing with the Babylonian exiles talking about Israel. And he goes, well, what does Israel even mean in this period when, you know, a good portion of Israel is just kind of, they, they, that, that, uh, portions of that northern kingdom, they never return. What, what, what's exactly thought of here? So that kind of stuck in my craw at the time. And, and, and uh, I spent a lot of time in that semester working through it. And uh, the other thing that had stood out to me uh, when I was reading through the, the New Covenant thing is that the New Covenant doesn't explicitly mention Gentiles. And, but I knew that prophecy from the, from the New Testament well as well, where in the New Testament, it's explicitly used with reference to non-Jews to Gentiles uh, who are seen as, as participating in the new covenant. So this ended up being a bit of a, a, a nut that I felt needed to be cracked. Uh, and I felt then that I had a, a, a good angle to take on it and didn't find anything in the literature that would go that direction. So that began essentially a 20 year period to get it right. So that's where this came from. Wow. Amazing. Um, so I know this would be a huge, uh, let me just, let me just see what we have in the chat here first before I, uh, so we got Tammy, uh, says, welcome Dr. Staples. So happy to have you here tonight. 
um, real truth, shalom all. One John, like this is something, um, you know, no Gentiles mentioned, no Gentile gates. I think one John is talking about uh, the reference of uh, in in the book of Revelation, right? The uh, the gates of the New Jerusalem. Um, what would you have to one say about that? Twelve tribes, yeah. Um, what would your take be on that, Jason? On there being no Gentile gates? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, and this is, this is really more the territory of my, of my second book, which is coming, uh, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that we'll spend more time on this, but I think the, the basic move that's made in the New Testament is that Gentiles are made into or they're incorporated into uh, this, what, what they see as a new covenant uh, Israel that is be in the process of being reconstituted through the gift of the Spirit that's been sent by Jesus. Uh, so I think that's, that's the idea is that, uh, and you got to remember, these are gates these are things that people enter through, right? It's not a matter of like, there's no Gentiles or no people of Gentile origin in the city. No, that's not the case. But they're all coming through those different gates. Uh, and you know, I think that ties to, to some of those ideas that, that these Gentiles are actually being integrated into or they're being incorporated into. They're becoming uh, a part of this uh, restored Israel that the prophets are talking about and that the, that this first book is spending more time about. Yeah. So here's, here's a big question. I know this is, (laughs) (laughs) this is a huge one, but uh, who is Israel? (laughs) Well, I mean, the, the question really has to be considered from a couple different angles. I mean, when when's the time period that we're talking about right um what what is the what is the time frame that we're looking at um and also are we ta- are we trying to take a god's eye view here is this a theological question or is this a question of say what uh the author of uh, the community rule in the Dead Sea Scrolls might think or might how he might answer that question or how, say, the author of the book of Revelation or, or the Apostle Paul might answer that question. Those are, all might be different answers. Uh, and so, you know, saying who is Israel is it's a that's a that's a question that, that can get difficult pretty quickly. Um, I think you can kind of come to a default sense that that this works in in the second temple period that and you know that's this is the period that uh christianity grew out of uh that israel is the covenantal word it's the 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 name the covenantal name the same way that, that the god of israel has his own covenantal name israel is the covenantal name of the people of that god uh and specifically uh israel historically is understood as a 12 tribe group that that derives from uh a specific patriarch who received that covenantal name uh but that that group was never say genetically uh consistent i mean there always were people being included and incorporated from the outside i mean you can see that uh throughout the torah you can see it you know with rahab and her family rahab and her family and uh and and uh uh 
in Judges. You can see it in the book of Ruth. I mean, there's all sorts of this, uh, this notion, but, the, but, it, but to become a part of Israel is to become integrated in that larger covenant community that is tied to the God who has covenanted with that people. I think that's the, the simplest answer for that. And of course, then, you know, from the God's eye view, that may be, uh, that may look a little different than what people uh, in a given community may identify as that, but uh, different communities through, t- through history have identified themselves or others and have excluded themselves or others from this community. But uh, I think that would be my simplest answer. Okay. Um, so we have, I've noticed this as well. Um, audio seems to be a little bit, um, I think it pro- it may be the internet connection. Um, I'm not sure. Sometimes is that, it corrects. Is that any better? So far, so good. All right. Let's see. I, I'm, I, I just, requ- I just uh, used the settings to make sure that it, it selected the proper mic. I don't know if it was on the wrong mic. It sounds like the same mic, but it doesn't have that. It was kind of like, like a little bit like a scratchy sound yeah, to it. No idea. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. What, what would you say to somebody who says, you know, um, I'm a Gentile. I'm not part of Israel. I'm not part of Judah yet. I, 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 um, I'm availing myself. I'm partaking in the new covenant. What would you say to someone like that? Well, I mean, the new covenant is explicitly made in, you know, this is the promise of the new covenant is, uh, is to be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Full stop. Right. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's, those are the people that the new covenant is supposed to be made with. Uh, So I don't think that's really much of an option in the sense of if you're a part of the new covenant community, then you, you sort of are in that you, you've, you've by, by of necessity, you're, you're, you're included in, in either the house of Israel or the house of Judah in that sense, right? You, you, you're, you're part of the group that, that that's included there. Now, interestingly in, uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, 27, I think it is, it says, I'm, I, you know, in that day, I will sow the house of, of Israel with the, with the seed of beasts and the seed of men, seed of humans. You know, this is Adam, uh, uh, and, Interestingly, in other places in the Hebrew Bible, oftentimes when you when you see beasts in this kind of context, it's we're actually using the language of you know different nations are referred to as as beasts essentially, or they're they're personified in this way. Uh, so this could very easily be understood as look, the house of Israel is actually being it becomes comprised of a mixed group, which I mean historically again it was never really a solely bloodline thing in Israel because people were marrying in, people were uh, coming in from the outside and becoming a part of the covenant community. Uh, this was just a reality throughout the pre-exilic period and, and it you know persists as it were. Uh, I understand why people make that uh, that distinction. Uh, one of the, one thing that that I think a lot of people are very concerned about is anti-Semitism. Uh, is the idea that if as a uh, if you know someone say from a Christian perspective uh, is understanding themselves as included in Israel, then you know does that erase the uh, Israelite status of Jews? Uh, 
Uh, and, you know, that's an understandable concern. I mean, there's a, a deep and very tragic history of, of Christian anti-Judaism that, uh, that needs to be considered with this. Uh, nevertheless, there is, you know, it's important to, I think, read these sources well and understand what they're actually saying. Uh, and I, I don't think that that, that that kind of thing is, is, is really a realistic option in, in, in any case, if we're going to read the, the, if we're going to read the prophets and we're going to read what, say what the new Testament says about that. But, but again, this first book isn't really looking at new Testament stuff. So we have, um, the brother over here at Dead Sea Scrolls Religion says the Samaritans are remnants of the house of Israel in which Samaria was the capital. The Samaritans are the genuine people of the house of Israel that have survived since antiquity. What say you, Jason? Um, that's partially true. Uh, they are a remnant of some of a couple of the tribes of the, of the house of Israel. Uh, you know, they themselves say that they came from the Joseph tribes of, of Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, but that does not make them the the remnant of the whole house of Israel because you don't have Samaritans from Asher or or Gad or uh, Naphtali or uh, or Reuben. You know many of these other tribes that essentially seem to have disappeared for all intents and purposes uh, after the uh, after the after the Assyrian period. Uh, there's very little evidence of a whole lot of tribal identity or. Uh, uh, tribal, uh, continued tribal um, uh, boundaries in that context. Uh, once the, the the kingdom of Israel uh, ceases, now, I mean, there's others who his, have questioned. Even, uh, I mean, there's so little evidence of them after the after the exile that there are people who have questioned whether or not uh, some of those tribal groups were even, you know, whether they whether they were a, a pre-exilic reality or whether they were essentially a, an invented category after the fact and you know i i think that tell that that's an an example of exactly how much space there is there but yes samaritans are a portion and they do derive from a portion of that northern house of israel yes okay we also have the same brother uh, onia he says uh israel is the patrilineal bloodline of Jacob's 12 sons and includes anyone who wishes to be part of Israel in which their blood gets intermingled with Israel after three generations of purging their blood. <laughs> so this is referring to uh, those who may enter into the assembly uh, in, in Torah uh, after three generations. Uh, and then of course there are some nations who are uh, barred for perpetuity from entering the assembly and some that are, you know, 10 generations, these sorts of things. Uh, and so I see where he's going with that. Now, one of the, one of the tricky parts of that is if you read uh, the, the Mishnah, uh, there is some discussion of this uh, and there's continued discussion of this in, in later rabbinic work as well, but there's a discussion of this uh, specifically. There was an Ammonite proselyte, uh, proselyte or someone who's identified as an Ammonite proselyte uh, who wants to be uh uh, included in the assembly. That's the language, but basically he wants to marry a good Jewish girl. Uh, and, uh, the question is brought to a couple different rabbis who say, you know, he, he may, or he may not. And the first says he may not. And it cites, you know, an Ammonite may not enter into the assembly of the ninth or 10th generation. And then another rabbi comes in and says, ah, he may enter because ever since the days of, uh, of, uh, 
of uh, the, the king of, of Assyria who came down and mixed up all the peoples, there hasn't been a separate Ammon and, or Ammon or, uh, or Moab or, you know, any of these nations. All of those nations ceased to exist and everybody got mixed up. And, you know, the, the, the 10 tribes are still mixed up and they're, you know, they've not yet returned as, as well. So, you know, these, that, that, that uh, essentially the blood has already been mingled for enough generations, essentially. So, you know, count it all as banter and, and the concluding statement in, in, in that passage is, and so they, they, they gave him permission. Uh, so the, the, the second argument won the day. So yes, but it gets a little bit more complicated in that post-exilic period, precisely because of all of the intermarriage that happens after that period. So th- this is a live discussion that is happening in the, uh, in, in the second temple period of, you know, who actually counts. I mean, do you have people from Amon who are not, you know, appropriately mixed? Uh, how, how can we, how can we tell? We don't really have a whole lot of records, you know, these sorts of things It all got mixed up because of the Assyrians. So, uh, so this is something that, that uh, Jewish tradition has been dealing with for, you know, for millennia in terms of answering that question. Okay. I've noticed you're, your microphone is scratchy again, and we also have a somebody else noticed this as well. Um, if you don't mind, Jason, it seems to me like it's probably the uh, the connection because when when you sound good, you're kind of blurry, but when you're not blurry, when you're clear, the microphone the sound goes. So, if you don't mind, could, would you mind trying like to click out of this and then kind of lock, kind of go back into yeah, the? I can come right back. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Yeah, please do that. I think that would that might help. All right. See if this is better. Let's see if that's any better here. Okay. I also switched. I also switched browsers. I don't know if that's if that makes a difference. Right now you're a little bit blurry, but the sound is okay. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, better to have sound than picture. Nobody's nobody's here for my mod. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, so fearfully confident says perfect answer. Um, all right. Let's see what else we have here. And so the question here is: Is this is this what Yeshua means when he said, "I come only for the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel"? Or what exactly does it, does that mean? He says of the house of Israel rather than the tribe of Israel. Remember, Israel is multiple tribes. Um, so that's that's in uh he says that in um in matthew uh and that's part of a uh that's part of a specific sort of theme that is played early in jesus uh, you know while jesus is is engaged in his ministry uh and he tells essentially his disciples to restrict their activity uh to the to the land proper uh, and interestingly, he in in making that uh, actually prohibits his uh, his his uh, disciples from going to the Samaritans in that particular passage. Uh, interestingly, by the end of that, uh, by the end of the of the Gospel of Matthew, he concludes by by sending his disciples to all nations. You know, go go to the ends of the earth and make uh, disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them all, starting you know Judea, Samaria. Uh, and then to the ends of the earth with, you know, using Deuteronomy language there. Uh, So it appears that he is operating from a, an an idea of uh, the house of Israel that extends all the way to the ends of the earth by the end of that book. So the book, I think that, 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 uh, that particular um, 
statement at that point in the book has to be read in the context of the larger of the whole book. And uh, we have to be careful about about reading one verse uh, absent the narrative context that we see within the within the larger frame that the that the book is, is taking us through. Okay. Um, so Onia over at Dead Sea Scrolls Religion says the way I think the 10 generations worked is once an Ammonite or or Moabite joins Israel, their offspring can't enter the congregation for 10 literal generations. Yeah, I most most scholars read that as a prohibition against Ammonites or Moabites joining Israel at all. Uh, you know, becoming a part of the people. Uh, you, you could you could read it that way. Um, even in that case, uh, that would essentially restrict them from full membership in Israel for those 10 generations, uh, which would mean no, no marrying in. Uh, and, you know, that, that would be, that would make them essentially a, 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 a separate group uh, in that. So it's a little bit different, but again, post-exilic period, that's a little bit different. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure where you, uh, Jason, where you uh, stand on some of the apocryphal works such as Second Esdras. Um, but Second, I see you're smiling there. What are you thinking? I'm just, I'm curious as to where you're going to go. Okay. So the, in Second Esdras, where it talks about, um, now I'm just trying to remember if it's the 10 tribes of Israel. Uh, but anyway, it talks about at least part of or all of Israel being uh, like uh, going to a distant land until basically the end times. If you know what I'm you across probably know the what Sabbath, I'm getting. across the Sabbath River is the is the uh, the story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so, actually, you know, it's hard to remember whether it's ten or nine or nine and a half because, as I recall, the the manuscript tradition differs in that that it, it, it it's not clear. Uh, it's it's different in different manuscripts of of that's actually the fourth Ezra, which is part of second Ezra. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, it's one of many sort of explanations that we see in the Second Temple period for what happened to Israel. Uh, you have a number of, and this is part of uh, of the book that that we're discussing. Uh, there are a number of uh, ways that later. Uh, that that basically early Jews are trying to explain what happened and what's going to happen in order for God to be able to fulfill his promise to Israel. And one of the big complicating factors is people are looking around and they're going, I don't see any Reubenites around and I don't see any people from Naphtali and, or, you know, Asher or whatever. So how exactly is God going to fulfill the promises that he gave us in the prophets? That's a, that's a tall order. What happened to these people? I mean, if they're gone, then that's, you know, does that mean that God can't do what he promised? So there are, a, there are a number of different ways of, of, um, of explaining what must have happened or what did happen. Um, and one of them, I think, is is explored in Fourth Ezra, Fourth Ezra, which is the idea that, oh, don't worry, they're out there somewhere. Like God moved the faithful from the ten tribes that have been missing all this time, and and they say ten tribes because these are people who actually have largely rejected the claims of the Samaritans. Uh, they they see them as as 
uh, having intermarried among the various Babylonian and Kuthian people that the Assyrians resettled in that area uh, when it became a, an Assyrian province. Um, so they're, they're not, they're not the faithful Israelites either. So they, they can't be counted, but the faithful Israelites are out there somewhere and God has miraculously preserved them somewhere out of sight. And someday, one day God is going to restore them. And, you know, and, and that's one option. We see that as an option in, uh, in fourth Ezra as a, as an interpretation. I think this is a, you know, sort of a faithful, um, uh, effort to explain, you know, sort of apocalyptically what, what must be the case. Um, we see in uh, the book of Tobit, we see a, a discussion, uh, we see a, a narrative, a whole story about one of the first uh, exiles from the tribe of, of uh, Naphtali, uh, who, you know, was taken in the eighth century, uh, taken into exile. And it chronicles this faithful Naphtalite and his family and how God has uh, God basically throughout looks after making sure that his family line stays and not only remains, but remains purely Naphtalite so that they're not mixed in with anybody else. And then at the end of the book, they go east and leave the Assyrian territory and they go further east to await the the eventual restoration. And so his his family eventually will be a part of the restoration that's promised that he himself as the patriarch of the family talks about in the final chapter of that book. So that's another angle. Uh, then you have, you know, Ezekiel 37, you've got some discussion in, uh, in Daniel where, okay, well, you know, if the house of Israel is completely dead, if every one of them, if every last one of them died in exile there, you know what? God is going to is going to resurrect those bones, breathe life into them and is going to restore all Israel. Like he said, and, if God is, is, is God, then he can go ahead and raise the dead to, to fulfill that promise if he wants to. So that, again, is another another way of, of, of taking this. So uh, there are a variety of different ways that this is that, that this is taken in the Second Temple period. But the one thing that seems to be pretty constant is an expectation that there will be a restoration or a larger restoration of this northern house of Israel uh, in addition to. Jews, in addition to people from Judah, uh, so uh, so yeah, that that would be my my larger take. Very good. Um, so when I asked you earlier about who is Israel, um, if I can just kind of summarize what you said is like whoever enters the covenant of God um, becomes Israel. Very I mean, very simply said, am I? Am I am I am I saying that right? I, I think that's 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 um, fair enough. I mean, basically, Israel is a designation for the covenantal people of the God of Israel, of you know Adonai, of you know uh, the the four letters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he has a covenantal name, and Israel is the covenantal name of the people of of that God. Uh, but you know, there is a uh, historical continuity to that people that can't be ignored. Uh, but at the same point, that has never sip, simply, you know, if you read the the biblical record, that's never simply about blood either. So uh, there's a there's a continuity there, but there's also a uh, uh, a constant ebb and flow of who's actually a part of those covenantal people, uh, including people who are born into being a part of that people who are cut off because of their their unfaithfulness, their infidelity. Uh, so you know, this is part and parcel of the larger tradition. 
I've had uh, I've had some uh, Jewish people, uh, you know, tell me that uh, as far as the biological, the bloodline, uh, so to so to speak, of the tribes of Israel, they said that there is no was it from the destruction of the temple from that period on. There's no uh, they basically they lost their genealogy um records and that kind of thing is that what you understand so, so say that last part again so like for example like um people who are part of the biological like the bloodline of let's say the reubenites you know the gadites the naphtalites uh these people uh, they lost basically they lost their identity at or around the time of the destruction of the temple, they lost the the records of their genealogy and that kind of thing. Uh, so that people who are actually like, you know, uh, like physical descendants of like the tribe of Dan, for example, they wouldn't know that today. Is that is that what you understand? I think that's by and large right. That that for the most part, uh, anybody who would have been from the northern part of Israel, if you're not. Uh, if they're not part of the Samaritans who, you know, claim to be from the Joseph tribes, uh, by and large, those people married into the the various nations in which they were scattered. That seems to be the most likely historical uh, uh, explanation for what happened to those various Israelites. And, you know, there's sort of a paper trail of what happened with certain Israelites. Uh, you, you see a lot of Yathiophorics among uh, certain groups of Assyrian uh, soldiers and so on, their conscripts and things like that, that are that Israelite, clearly some Israelite charioteers and so on are, are, are taken into the uh, larger Assyrian empire uh, and Assyrian army. After that, you get uh, various areas of the Assyrian empire that you, you see some of this stuff happen. But, you know, over time, people tend to marry into the populations in which they're scattered, unless there's a very strong effort uh, not to do that and a strong emphasis on endogamy on on only marrying within the group which is is not that common for it to to hold which is which makes you know modern jews uh that that's a really rare phenomenon i mean what other what other group of uh what other ethnic group uh do we have that basically can say yeah um this bloodline goes back how long? You know, thousand how many thousand years here? Uh, where they've been, they, they've maintained a consistent, um, uh, they've maintained a consistent ethnic identity despite being in other nations and mixed with other nationalities for generations, and that's not that common. And I think with the with the northerners, with most northern Israelites, I think that was not the case in most cases. So um, I think it's and this is another option, right? I think this is one of those things where uh, I think the earliest Christians and, and in particular, the apostle Paul ultimately argue that the, uh, the bulk of the Northern house of Israel intermarried. And so the, the means of uh, reconciliation for that group is actually to incorporate the, the nations that bringing in the nations is actually the means is the way that God is, 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 uh, is going to restore Israel has promised. It's essentially a resurrection of Israel from the nations in which Israel was scattered and ultimately lost its national identity. Uh, so I think that's, that's another option. That's another, another thing that, that this, again, 
late second temple group uh, that became early Christianity. That's, that's, I think the, the direction that they go. And there isn't, by the way, a way, I mean, you see people, well, you know, if you DNA tested people, you could get, you could find out if they were part of the original 12 tribes or whatever. No, you couldn't. You would have to have DNA. You'd have to have DNA from each of the early 12 tribes to be able to say, okay, let's match that DNA and see if there's, you know, some of these links. I, I, I think we don't quite understand how that, how, first of all, how DNA works in terms of that. Uh, and you know, secondly, you have to have enough of a comparison population to be able to make that, uh, to be able to make that comparison. So, and we don't have that and we won't have that. So, uh, and especially since even though they did have a lot of blood continuity, there were people who were adding in from the outside and were intermarrying and being incorporated into these tribal groups, you know, throughout. So it's not like it would be, you know, there's a, there's a genetic smoking gun. You just couldn't do it. I believe you're muted. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. I think about um, in the book of Revelation where it talks about the 144,000, you know, the 12,000 from each tribe. Now, do you believe this already happened? Like, are, are you preterist or do you think that this is just inaccurate, that it's not to be believed? Or um, what? what is your take on that? So I, I think Revelation is in that 144,000 is, uh, is specifically calling to this expectation of a restored people of Israel, uh, from all the various tribes. And I think revelation is like other earliest Christians expecting this to happen in its own day, uh, through the, uh, incorporation of the nations. So I think what, what, you see is that, and again, you read that passage in line with the uh, innumerable multitude that, that also shows up in the same set of passages. I think they're ultimately to be identified and that 144,000 is intentionally that, uh, that kind of um, uh, symbolic number where you have 12 times 12 times a thousand, you have, you know, the fullness of Israel at its fullness, right? Like, to the nth degree. Uh, so I think this is a, basically a way of it representing uh, the, the whole restored community of Israel uh, in, a, in this kind of symbolic form, which is how Revelation likes to do things. Okay. So uh, if I get you correctly here, you don't take that as a literal, like mathematical number. It's more like no. symbolic. Yeah. No, I, I don't think that's the way that any of the numbers really work in, in Revelation. I mean, Revelation tells you in verse one that this is, you know, a, a, the, uh, the, the, this whole use of Simeon of uh, this is symbolic. He, he, he uh, symbolized to his, uh, uh, his servant, John, you know, this is the revelation, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which he, you know, unveiled is not the verb here it's it, it's not which he revealed or anything it's which he made known by signs and among those signs are things like you know uh really uh tightly symbolic numbers so you know i think you have the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples for a re 12 apostles for a reason and you 12 times 12 times thousand there you go bam all right gotcha um See what we have here in the chat so far. So I'm, I see one John 2, uh, 26 is saying, uh, 
con, uh, sci- scientists claim they can determine if you are Hebrew, not necessarily which tribe. But again, Hebrew is tying to mapping Hebrew and Jew together. The problem is that if you have non-Jewish Israelites who are not from Judah, then that test can't account for that because again, you don't have a match. You don't have a uh, you don't have a control population uh, from which you are actually drawing your comparisons. That's the problem. So it's just never, you're not going to get a test that can do that. So just to be clear, um, Jew means from Judah. Essentially, right. So, um, so the word Jew comes from the word Judah, right? That's it. Actually, is the short form of of Jew uh, of Judah, which it, it means Judahite. Uh, and the, as this term was used in the Second Temple period, and this is part of the argument of the of the larger book, uh, is uh, as it as that term is used, it basically refers to the people who come from the southern tribe or the southern kingdom of Judah, which confusingly <laughs> includes the large tribe of Judah, which is the dominant tribe, and the priestly tribe of Levi or Levi, and then the priest and then the other tribe of Benjamin or Benjamin. So all of them fall under the larger umbrella of Judah, of Yehud, uh, of Persian Yehud, but only some of them are Judahite Judahites. Some are Benjaminite Judahites, right? So you have this kind of umbrella effect uh, where all of them, all of them are from the, those southern tribes, though, and that, that's that's really who that refers to. People from Samaria would not be, uh, or you could let's see, let's say, be a Jewish person, a person descended from the from the southern tribes who then lives in Samaria, sure, but someone who's from the Samaritans claims to be Israelite, and they have Israelite heritage, but they're not Jews. They're not from the from the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and the whole group is Hebrew, as it were, in terms of uh, ethnic or linguistic marker. So these are these are terms that overlap, but they're not identical. And uh, uh, this this gets a little bit uh, confusing because of some of that overlap. But um, but and it's and it's often misused or misunderstood, even in scholarly literature, which is why ultimately I wrote this book. So basically, if you are so Levite from the tribe of Levite, Benjamin or Judah, you could be considered to be a Jew from any one of those tribes, especially if you're from the tribe of Judah, obviously. Um, But if you're from like the tribe of Gad, you're not technically a Jew. Is that correct? Right. You're not a Jew. You're an Israelite. Yeah. And the same would be true for, for Asher. Right. And I see the mention of Anna from Asher, which is a really, really difficult, uh, uh, passage in uh, in Luke because at the, in the beginning of of the book of Luke the the, the Gospel of Luke you have uh, this this person Anna from the tribe of Asher is identified uh, and that's the only time in the post exilic period we see anybody mentioned as from the tribe of Asher so this is exceedingly rare if there were people running around identifying themselves or still you know a remnant from Asher. They were they were vanishingly rare, uh, and we don't see anybody from Reuben. We don't see anybody from a, a number of these other tribes. So, 
we don't have uh, any evidence that af- after the return from the, 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 the after the say the period of Ezra Nehemiah, we don't have any evidence for um, a continued twelve you know distinct twelve tribes. We have some individuals from more than more than just the tribe of, of Judah. We you know we have people as late as Paul saying he's a Benjaminite. And actually, interestingly, some of the uh, the early rabbis are from Benjaminite stock as well. So Hillel uh, and um, uh, Gamaliel, uh, the, the first and second, both of them, I believe, uh, uh, can, uh, were uh, identified as from Benjaminite stock. So you, you have that continued uh, distinction and you still have today actually some who continue to identify themselves as from Levi, from Levi, uh, specifically if you see the last name Cohen, uh, Cohen is the word for priest. And that goes back to uh, potentially a priestly line. So, um, you know, that's, it's not entirely gone. You see some tribal identity and even, you know, uh, the Ephraim and Manasseh tribes are represented in the Samaritans, though that, kind of collapses to just be from Joseph. Uh, the distinction between Ephraim and Manasseh kind of disappears there. So there is a continued uh, uh, distinction between tribes into the, into the second temple period. There just aren't all 12. And there's not a whole lot, if there are any from some of these others. And, and again, uh, someone from Asher is, is vanishingly rare. We see no evidence of that ex- except in that one version uh, in Luke, which is a, an interesting, uh, interesting thing, um, that, uh, that kind of pulls us to, uh, to think about this, you know, pretty, uh, pretty quickly and pretty clearly. We have a very simple solution here from Onia at Dead Sea Scrolls Religion says, well, we just have to dig up the 12 patriarchs. Problem solved. That's it right there. got it all done. There you go. That's it. Um, Tammy says at Dr. Staples, we have five primary bloodlines now. A, A, B, B, O, R, H, O negative is extremely rare, which I am. Could this bloodline be an ancient original bloodline? I'm not exactly sure what that is asking. Um, in the sense of could, would there have been ancient people with the RHO negative blood uh yeah and odds are they would they some someone who has that now would probably be derived from someone you know a couple thousand years ago who probably had that as well somewhere in the family tree do i think that that like say the whole nation of israel had a distinct blood type no no i I don't think that's plausible at all it also would be um pretty in terms of you know having a homogenous such a homogenous population that would be pretty pretty uh pretty bad for the for the group uh you want to have you know a pretty heterogeneous set of 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 blood types there um and also again we've got lots of people who are you know becoming incorporated into israel throughout that whole period from the outside so immediately you have even if they did all start with one particular blood type, as it were, uh, that would be adulterated <laughs> before you get out of the out of the book of Genesis. Uh, you know, when Joseph marries an Egyptian wife, what what do you do with that? Uh, when you know 
uh, Judah's sons marry Canaanite women. What what do you do with that? I mean, this is the reality is that this is not there's not a blood type. This is not something that that maps on that way. And and trying to think about it that way, I think is a is a colossal mistake. It's a modern mistake. Here's a question. I know that at least some Jewish people consider Abraham to be the first Jew. How does that work? He's not. He's the <laughs> he's the he's the father of Israel. In the sense of, you know, he's the he's the father of Isaac, and then Isaac is the father of Jacob, who becomes Israel, who then becomes the father of the twelve tribes, of which Judah and the tribes under Judah become a subset. So in that sense, you know, Abraham is the first to receive the the, the covenant that extends to Israel, which of which uh, under which Jews fall. But it's he he's he's not properly he's not a Jew proper in that in that sense because the the term doesn't refer to people who are not from uh, that southern southern stock essentially even though they are themselves derived from Abraham so it's right in the sense of what it's trying to get at historically but it, it it's it's nonsense in terms of of the application of that term it's sort of like referring to um, Pocahontas as a as as someone from the United States. Right. Like, well, I mean, no Native American, you know, from like indigenous to the United to the area that became the United States. But the United States didn't exist for, you know, good couple hundred years yet. So it'd be something like that. Here's the question. Who would be the first Jew? Judah. Okay. I mean, we, we, but even there that, you know, looking at Jew in the sense of, a refer a designation of a people group that doesn't happen until Judah has become a larger people group, right? So uh, we don't see the word, you know, Yehuda or Yehudim. Uh, 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 we don't see Yehudim being used as a descriptor of people until basically the Babylonian period, the the Neo Babylonian period. Uh, we see the first uses of the term. Jew or Yehudim in, in Hebrew uh, in uh, the book of Jeremiah, which is in Judah, in Jerusalem, and referring to the people from that kingdom. And that's that's where you get that. So uh, historically, the first people to be referred to as Yehudim would be people from the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, which would likely tie back to David. So, I mean, you could make the case maybe that David might be thought constructively as that but i mean if you really want to be proper about it about that in terms of you know thinking about what the term comes from comes from patriarch judah fearfully confident wants to know if you believe paul was benjamite he says he was i mean i i wasn't there for the conception (laughs) didn't know his parents but i mean i don't see any reason to doubt him onia here says but the second exile is what led to the loss of the tribal identity with the Israelites losing their identity and intermarrying and identifying from that point on as Jews. So why did so many Israelites not do that? And why do we not have any, why, why then are Israelites losing that identity? I mean, I think it's absolutely certain that many Israelites did 
intermarry with Jews and identify themselves as Jews after that, because they became incorporated into that larger people group that, that was associated with the people from the kingdom of Judah and eventually the province of Yehud and so on. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. But what about the other Israelites who didn't intermarry with, with Judah? And then what about the problem that you're you know, going to be expecting a restoration that's going to include people not only who are identifying themselves as from Judah, but the rest of the Israelites who aren't. So this, you know, that that's while that's, you know, largely true, it doesn't really get at the larger sense of what's actually happened there. Someone asked me, how can a Benjamite be a priest? I don't believe they can. What do you think, Jason? I mean, in the uh, in the Torah, uh, someone has to be from Aaron to be a priest, and Aaron is from uh, Levi or Levi. So, you know, that's uh, someone from Benjamin's not going to be a priest. I'm not sure why that why that question's asked. I don't know of anybody from Benjamin that's claiming to be a priest, or you know, any idea that a Benjaminite would be a priest. So, I'm not sure what that would be specifically about. Yeah, I'm not sure what the context is there. Fearfully Confident asks, what's your take on Genesis 49, particular verse, particularly verse 27? Um, see if I can pull that up. Genesis 49, 27. I think that's talking about Benjamin. Yeah, so uh, that's, a, that's the verse that says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey. At night he shall divide the spoil. <laughs> I don't really have a specific take on this verse. Um, I mean, this, this is from the blessing of, of, uh, Yaakov of Jacob at the, uh, at the end of, of, uh, Bereshit at the end of, 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 um, of, uh, Genesis. So, you know, this is really referring to sort of how the, how the various tribes and tribal areas function in the, in the later period that, that Genesis is referring to. So once Benjamin becomes a people, uh, they become, you know, this, uh, you know, they become a, a, a tribe, a, a tribe that's associated with war. Uh, and when you read through the, uh, uh, the former prophets and some of the, uh, the historical other historical or historiographical material from the, from the Hebrew Bible, you see that as that kind of border region between the Northern and Southern halves, uh, they serve that kind of pivotal role and they also are really uh, significant in, in a number of uh, contexts for martial stuff, including a pretty nasty civil war at the end of, uh, of judges. So I think that that's probably referring to that sort of history and sort of where the uh, Benjaminites sit in their, in their sort of function between the, the two kingdoms. If I, if I understand that question correctly, there are some, there are, there is a, a few people, there are a few out there that um, people who are like, they don't like, they don't like Paul at all. And since Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, they say, well, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Therefore, Paul is a ravenous wolf. So I think that's where that could be coming from. <laughs> yeah, I'd better throw out Hillel and, uh, and, you know, the, foundations of rabbinic judaism too i guess i mean let's just go ahead and throw out the entire tribe why not because you've got a, a an obscure uh 
reference here. You know, that's, that's really, that doesn't make any sense. Hebrews aren't Jews nor Israelites. Important distinction. The Bible seems to identify Hebrews as all the descendants of Eber. Uh, so that includes Arabs, Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, and others. Yes and no. Hebrew is complicated, really complicated. Um, so, yes, you do get the derivation of the word Hebrew from Hever, um, but uh, exactly how that functions later on and who gets referred to as Hebrews is tricky. I mean, early in the Torah, you have Hebrew used as a uh, designation for the people in the wilderness, uh, for the people who are who are. Uh, let out in the Exodus. Uh, these are the Hebrews. Uh, then in the former prophets in, in uh, first and second Samuel, you have uh, reference to Hebrews who are essentially uh, servile or enslaved peoples. They're, they're people who uh, uh, are basically put to forced labor by the, uh, by the uh, uh, Philistines and, uh, then they cast off the yoke of the Philistines and they seem to be identified with some Israelites as well in that case. And they're not the same as Ammonites and others. So that's a little tricky. Um, there's some who've suggested that you actually have kind of this as a designation of wandering uh, uh, Bedouin type folks throughout this area that end up being incorporated and caught up within uh, Israel as the, as the various nation states of the, of the region sort of coalesce. Uh, so it gets a little complicated. I think the, by the time you get to the second temple period, it's basically a linguistic definition, uh, uh, definition. Uh, Hebrew basically serves to, to talk about people who are Western Semitic speaking people. So, uh, you know, you've got Greek speakers in the region, you've got Hebrew speakers in the region and that's, you know, Hebrew, Aramaic, maybe Arabic, uh, you know, that kind of people who are in that, that, uh, line of, of, uh, language tree. Uh, and so in that sense, yeah, I mean, I think the people who would be descended from Hever in the, in, in Genesis, uh, including Ammonites and, you know, the variety of, of others like that, these are people who are going to be speaking something like Aramaic or, and, and something very closely related to, uh, uh, to biblical Hebrew, uh, to, you know, the, the Hebrew that's spoken essentially, uh, Canaanite type dialect that's spoken by the Israelites that, that would refer to the, to all those people that refer that, that speak in those various, you know, sister tongues, essentially. I noticed, uh, and so, so, I see, I see someone says Hebrew means cross over. Yeah. And most likely it, it's referring to people on this side. It's the people who are on this side of the, uh, of the Euphrates. And uh, there's an article by, uh, uh, Beatty and um, Davies that talks about that as a, as a definition of where that would have initially come from in the sense of these are the people who crossed over from the, from Mesopotamia, they crossed over to the other side of, of the Euphrates. So they're, you know, sort of like other side of the river, the folks on, on the other side idea. Anyway. Then we have someone else that says that Hebrew means tent dweller. Not exactly. Yeah, so, I, 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 I see also uh, 
the one the follow-up on why benjaminites being priests because uh he says as i understand it a pharisee is a priest pharisees were not priests uh there were some pharisees there were some priests who were pharisees but most priests in the second temple period were not actually pharisees the the majority of uh priests say in the first century uh would have associated with the sadducees from what we can tell uh, sadducees really ran things in the in the temple precincts in particular although they tended to follow uh the popular pharisaic uh uh rules for how to run things in the in the temple courts so uh very different pharisee uh was a is a way of designating uh there, there are a couple of possibilities on what that word may have come from, but it, it was a word that basically was used to refer to people who took a particularly exact uh, approach to the Torah. And uh, so they were people who identified themselves as, you know, the people who were the exact ones uh, who, who get it right, essentially, you know, people who are careful about interpretation. Uh, so it was more of a party of people and a way of interpreting uh, scripture, people who are very concerned with uh, trying to live out uh, the Torah well and interpret it well, and so that was their reputation, and that's what they that's what they went by. There's a really good volume, actually, a good book uh, called "The Pharisees" that was released uh, within the last nine months or so. That if you're interested in the Pharisees, that's the one you should read. Who's the author? Uh, it's an edited volume. Um, let's see, it is. Um, by it's edited by Seavers and Amy Jill Levine. So a, uh, Joseph Seavers and AJ Levine. That that book will, if you're interested in the Pharisees and who they actually were, that book is is the is the bleeding edge. That's the that's the uh, the best evidence for what we know about the Pharisees. Do you believe that Jesus was a Pharisee? No. He was awfully he, he was awfully close to a lot of Pharisaic interpretation, and many of the earliest Christians were Pharisees. Uh, we see that from uh, the Book of Acts, for example, that talks about how you know you know healthy number of the earliest converts, uh, earliest uh, wouldn't even be converts, a healthy number of the earliest followers of Jesus after after the resurrection uh, would have been uh, they were Pharisees, and they continued to live as Pharisees. And Paul Jesus himself continues to call himself a Pharisee, both in his letters and in, in Acts. He never stops being a Pharisee. Yeah. Do you believe that Jesus wasn't a scene? No. Sadducee? No, definitely not. Of them, of, of those different groups, the one that he had the least in common with is, is, is the Sadducees. And the most in common? Probably the Pharisees. Okay. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, there are a few places where he he has some subtle differences with them, but the reason that he had as many running with them as he did is because he was so. It's one of those things where you you have the most conflict with the people that you're closest to, uh, and there were places where he uh, he had conflict with Pharisees because there were fine points that uh, that he emphasized differently. Uh, but I, I think he falls closer to them than many, many of the other sects from that era. So it, it seems in the book of Acts, I believe that uh, Paul. It's portrayed that Paul got like his. Um, he persecuted the Christians at the behest of the high priest. 
So the high priest in those days would have been a Sadducee, am I correct? So the high priests uh, at when Paul would have been doing that, yes, would have been uh, the the Caiaphas family. Yeah, they were they were Sadducees. Yes. So I, there is this thing that is, I've heard a Jewish rabbi say that um, Pharisees and Sadducees certainly don't get along at all. Is that what you understand? <laughs> So, yes and no. Um, it's a little tricky because, in terms of interpretation, in terms of you know thinking, in terms of being able to agree on who's right about what, then absolutely, yeah. They they there was no love lost, and they had you know no real, um, uh, they they couldn't get along. Nevertheless, when you have something like the temple, where that's a pretty ecumenical space. This, you know, at a certain point, the rubber has to meet the road and, and sacrifices and offerings have to get done. Uh, the place needs to be maintained. And, you know, the morning offering needs to be made at this time and the evening offering needs to be made at this time. And we're going to agree on how it's going to be done at some point. At some point, it's going to be done a certain way. <laughs> and it's either not going to be done or it's, you know, somebody's going to have to figure out, okay, well, we'll, we disagree on this, but at some point we're going to have to just do it. Uh, and when the rubber came, when the rubber met the road on some of those things, ultimately they, they found a way. Uh, Josephus actually tells us that by and large, the Sadducees, even though they were in charge of the temple, uh, operated the temple more or less according to pharisaic interpretation they had lots of things where they thought the pharisees were just completely wrong in their interpretation of you know all sorts of things but in terms of like when the offerings should be made and this and that yeah fine the, the crowds tend to side with the pharisees so we're just going to do that that's basically what he says and, and so i think in that sense that that's true uh there also seems to have been, you know, to whatever degree you have an operating Sanhedrin, uh, that is a group that includes both Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, and so what you have there is you have a, a group where it's sort of like, you know, do Democrats and Republicans get along? Well, I mean, it depends on exactly what's at stake and who exactly they're being confronted with. Right. Um, if you know it's a matter of choosing between, say, uh, Soviet Russia in you know 1986, or siding with you know the other side of the political aisle in the United States, generally speaking, people are going to side with the other member of the you know the other other American over and against the Russian the the, the you know the uh, the the uh, Soviet representative, right? So. I think it basically worked similarly with the Sanhedrin that as with any kind of body like that, you're going to have disputes. You're going to have things where they're going to, you know, have trouble getting along, but you know, in certain cases, like, you know, we can agree that this is in the interest of the people as a whole. So we're just going to do it this way. And I think that's, that's how that basically worked. Uh, and what's interesting is you have Paul who's uh, identifying himself as a Pharisee, Who's who's concerned enough about what's going on in the earliest Jesus movement that he gets a he gets approval from the from the priests to you know pursue this and 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 get people locked up and disciplined for uh, for endangering the people 
And that logic seems to make sense. That seems to be the sort of thing that they probably could agree on, because I think the idea is, look, this is a group that's preaching a king other than Caesar. And this is the sort of thing that can kind of get us in real trouble (laughs) as a people. So we got to we got to stop this quick before the Romans step in is, I think, the idea. Um, And that's basically how Jesus gets crucified as well. Right. I mean, Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of allies once he declares himself, essentially declares himself Messiah and uh, proclaims against the temple in Passover and, you know, powder keg week. You know, the, the, the whole group eventually says, yeah, probably better that he goes down than all of us go down. Right. That's what Caiaphas is actually reported to have said. Better than one guy dies for the sake of the whole people. Well, uh, so I think Pharisees and Sadducees could certainly have gotten along in that context. Interestingly, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul happens to, in his own defense, when he's before the Sanhedrin defending himself, he happens to lob a grenade out there that he knows that no, nobody's going to agree with on either side. He says, I'm on trial because of my, my confidence, my belief in the resurrection of the dead. And it says, suddenly the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the group start arguing with one another. And he knew full well that they couldn't get along on that. <laughs> so he's going to do that and, you know, basically get himself into a position where there, it's going to be a hung jury. So, um, I think that's kind of the idea that you that you get there. But by and large, the 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 Sadducees were more p- heavy power players at the time, who were more uh, uh, closely aligned with the Roman interests that were running Jerusalem. And thank you, Jamie, for the super sticker. Um, Jamie also asks, let's see if I can find this. What? Does Dr. Staples make of Yoma 39B? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Yoma 39B, that does actually ring a bell. I'm just going to have to look that up real quick. I I don't know that one either off the... If I remember right... uh, That has to do with uh, a tribal reference here. Let me see. Okay. I'm pretty sure he's not referring to the drawing lots for the goats. Um, yeah, I don't have a particularly strong uh, opinion on Yoma 39B at the moment. I mean, maybe Yochanan ben Zakkai's uh, prophecy against the temple. I, so I, I don't know exactly what's being referred to there. Yeah, Jamie, if you could um, be more specific what you're referring to, we appreciate it. Billy says, I always thought Jesus was a scene because of Luke 2, 36. No, there were women at the temple all the time. There was there was a court a court specifically designated for women that women were in all the time. Yeah. Okay. So your new book, Jason, um, on. Let's see if it's. 
your new book that's on um, Israel in the letters of the Apostle Paul. So um, I have not read that book yet. Nobody so has, or not many people <laughs> have, because it's not it's not uh, published yet. It's not published yet. Okay. Um, so could you explain what we can look forward to? Um, basically, what I'm doing is I'm building on the uh, foundation from this first book in terms of how people are understanding uh, Israel within uh the various forms of Judaism in the second temple period uh, and how Paul builds on that to make his case for why Jesus uh, is Israel's Messiah and for how he understands that uh, as related to uh, the incorporation of non-Jews, people from the nations into uh, this restored community uh, and then how that ultimately uh works in his in his reading of the prophets and and the torah uh explaining essentially how he understands uh israel as related to this larger gospel proclamation so uh essentially i would just say if you're interested in understanding what paul's actually doing in the new testament uh this book should be a pretty good foundation to help you understand exactly what's going on and i think paul's complicated. I think there are a number of places that Paul has been very badly misread, uh, but you have to read him very closely and very carefully, understanding that he makes some distinctions between, say, Israel and uh, the Jews, as it were, uh, with Jews being a subset of Israel. He makes that distinction that most modern readers do not, and that includes the vast majority of, uh, of biblical scholars. Pretty much all biblical scholars in the modern era have not made that distinction, and Paul does. Uh, and once we understand that distinction, that allows us to understand that certain places that are uh, that seem to be just outright contradictions where he you know, will say, you know, what benefit is there for, uh, you know, for for the Jew versus the uh, versus the nations? And he said, well, much in every way. But of course, then at the end of the day, all stand before God. Uh, more or less on even footing because all have sinned, et cetera. And then you get to the end of Romans and all Israel will be saved. And you're like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. So is it like, it, is it that, you know, Gentiles have the same kind of opportunity or is it that all Israel will be saved? Well, this is actually not contradictory. The one is leading to the other, but you have to understand the distinctions that he's making and see, see what he's doing with, with his reading of the prophets. So essentially I'm trying to explain some of those uh, those pieces and and really get a uh, lay a, a, a firmer foundation for how to understand Paul. And again, I, I think he's uh, largely horrendously read. Uh, I think he's one of the most poorly understood uh, authors. Period. Not just uh, theologians or biblical authors or whatever, but historically speaking, I think the way that he's been read has been abysmal. Partly because I think he was a better thinker than he was writer in the sense of uh, he wrote at a level that later readers, um, these are, I mean, we're reading letters that were, uh, essentially read by people who had been trained to read those letters by Paul, uh, to help explain them to the various church groups, to the various, you know, house communities, uh, these, these ecclesia, uh, that, uh, communities that, that he, that these letters were going to, and we're reading half of that correspondence. We're getting half of the telephone conversation. And then we're getting that without all of the subtext and all of the help, interpretive help that is that that would be provided for that. And so there's an 
awful lot of reconstructed context that you have to do. And if you don't do the work to really reconstruct that context, then you're going to tend to really badly misunderstood it, understand that in the same way that if you just open crack open the, the Talmud or the Mishnah and you just start reading and you don't recognize that, you know, oh, well, that's half of, you know, half of a verse from Hosea here. And then he responds with half of a verse from, you know, Isaiah 10 here. And so, and, oh, that's alluding to this other thing. And that's why that word's different. If you don't actually know that and you have someone to help you recognize that those what appear to be like little mistakes in the language or whatever, that that's actually playing with another passage and all of that, then you're just going to miss what's actually being said there. And so my effort in the second book is basically to try to lay that foundation and what's going on for Paul. Um, one, one last thing I did see another, uh, 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 question here from kingdom concepts. Why would Rome care about, you know, the question of, of what early Christians are pre are uh, teaching that sort of thing. I don't buy into the new Testament narratives and acts entirely. Rome cared quite a bit over, uh, about any potential revolutionary activity. And Rome was very, uh, Rome was very live and let live right up until you start proclaiming someone other, someone as a ruler other than Caesar. Uh, anything that threatens that, that potentially threatens the tax base or require, you know, potentially requires armed, uh, 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 any sort of armed, uh, uh, interference, they're going to get their attention real quick. And so, uh, you see why Rome was interested in these sorts of things and why the Jerusalem establishment is interested in quelling these sorts of things right away. Uh, you know, 40 years later in, in 70, when Jerusalem in 66 to 70, Jerusalem ends up falling in, under, in other hands with revolutionaries who are trying to cast off the yoke of Rome, claiming that they are, you know, initiating the, 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 this new restored Israel. Well, that's a, that's a dangerous teaching. If you have people running around saying that Israel's being restored and that this person here who, you know, Rome crucified as, <laughs> as a political dissident happens to have really been the, the rightful king of Israel and, and in fact is going to come back and, and restore Israel as promised and, and Israel is going to be on top of the world and not Rome. Yeah, you can see real quick how that would catch Rome's attention. And if you're part of the Jewish establishment, that's like, mm, that's really not what we want Rome to be focused on right here. You're going to try to address that within the community before it actually escapes and, and, and gets Rome's attention. So I think that's absolutely the sort of thing that would get Rome, uh, Roman eyes. And that makes it something that would certainly have the interest of the Jerusalem authorities who are just trying to maintain the status quo and keep the peace. And so, you know, anybody who's out there potentially or proclaiming anything that looks even remotely revolutionary, they're interested in, you know, trying to quell that before the Romans step in and, and potentially get rid of all of them. Because as soon as there's any revolution on the horizon, Rome is going to step in and they're going to remove all the people where that's happening on your watch. Obviously you can't handle your people. So we're going to have to come in and do it for you. Huh? Well, it's not going to go well for the people who are in charge. So those who are in charge have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Jamie, thanks again, Jamie, for the super, super chat. Um, I believe we answered this question earlier, but I'm not sure, Jamie, if you were here. So what might be the reasonable interpretation of the 144,000 from the 12 tribes in the book of Revelation? 
I understood uh, Jason to say that it's just is like it's symbolic. It's not, it's not literal. Uh, basically, saying that uh, you know all of Israel will come in. Uh, all of Israel would, would basically that hundred forty four thousand means all of Israel. Am I right in saying that, James? Yeah, I think that's basically right. That that Jason, uh, you have twelve times twelve times a thousand. And these are, you know, round symbolic numbers that refer to, you know, the full, the whole full restored, complete group of Israel. And, uh, and, you know, the fact that it is including tribes that have not been seen in hundreds of years in that list, uh, I think helps further that, uh, that, that particular thing. I have not, by the way, uh, uh, read, I see another question. Uh, I've not, by the way, read Caesar's Messiah. Um, the idea that Rome made up a Messiah to quell the Yahudim. I, I find that incredibly implausible. And, and especially if you know anything about how Rome worked, um, that's the kind of conspiracy theory that requires a great deal more competence than, uh, I think, uh, was actually in play there. Uh, I, I, I tend to be, um, to tend, I tend to take a pretty dim view of a lot of conspiracy theories, uh, partly because I think most most conspiracy theories require a lot more uh, coordination and competence than most people, especially people in power, tend to have. Uh, generally speaking, people in power are just trying to maintain their power, and they uh, do so in pretty sloppy ways. In Rome, uh, you look at the number of emperors that cycled through in that first in the first century, and you know the small amount of time that they had to do this. I mean, who's actually doing this? It's just not plausible. It's just, it's yeah, it's tinfoil hat stuff or aluminum foil hat stuff. Real truth uh, says, yes, I agree. We have no clue of all the discussions around the very few words we have in the letters written by Paul. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask, yeah, Jason, uh, you probably get a little bit of an idea that there there is a mixed bag in the in the audience here. People who uh, <laughs> all kinds of different ideas on Paul, and so like you'll find that the audience here is a lot more open to, as opposed to more Christian, like you know Christian uh, typical Christians would be their their fur would stand stand on end if you said anything against Paul. Uh, there are people that uh, in the audience here that is. Uh, uh, 100% for Paul, just in there, there are those who are like, well, Paul is just grossly misunderstood. And then there are others that are like, no, well, Paul is just wrong in most of what he says. Um, so, yeah, I notice, Jason, in your blog on the on your website, um, you have an you have an article, I don't have it up right now, uh, about Paul now. Something like Paul did not say faith alone. I know this is a little bit off topic, but this really catches my eye because this is something I talk. We talk about a lot here. Um, could you explain that? Well, I mean, Paul never once in any of his letters ever says by faith alone or faith alone at, at all, even without the by. Uh, now, if you're reading Luther's German edition of Galatians, he inserts alone in like four places, but. Um, it's not in any of the Greek manuscripts that we have of Paul. Paul does not preach salvation by faith alone or justification by faith alone. He does not. The only place in the New Testament where the words by faith alone appear are in James 2.26, where they are preceded by the word not. So 
take from that what you will, but that's the only place in the New Testament that you get the words by faith alone, and it's not by faith alone. So Paul doesn't use that terminology. Personally, I find that a breath of fresh air, <laughs> considering a lot of people. Um, Precision matters. Yeah, I mean, true. Uh, when you when you when you say by faith alone, and Paul didn't actually use that language, you're you're saying something that he didn't say. Uh, now he does say by pistis. What I I, I tend to translate uh, the the word that's usually translated as faith. I tend to translate that with the word fidelity. Which I think draws closer to what uh, the, the word means in in first century Greek. Uh, there's a, a several really good books that are that have been done on uh, on uh, pistis uh, uh, in the last uh, ten years or so. But um, uh, basically, fidelity is the idea that that you get there and and the book that i'd most recommend on this by the way is roman faith and christian faith by teresa morgan who's a classicist uh someone who's uh, more a uh greek a scholar of greece and rome she decided to take a stab at at, at pistis in in the letters of paul and i think she basically gets it right uh that it's fidelity something like that um but anyway, for Paul, he preaches, he does preach justification that is being made into a person who does just things by fidelity rather than by works of law. But that is not the same thing as saying salvation by faith alone. Those are, those are completely different concepts and, um, and, you know, glossing the, the, the former with the latter, I think has led to a great deal of misunderstanding. Uh, Onia says, uh, Paul interprets saving, uh, saving faith as requiring works. Well, I mean, the way I explain it to my students is, you know, I'm married and if I'm going to be faithful to my spouse, then I'm going to uh, abide by and do the, the things that I pledged to do as a part of our marriage agreement. Uh, so, you know, if I, as a married man who pledged, uh, sexual fidelity to my wife happened to be out cruising the, the streets for, uh, you know, for other women, then I'm not faithful. <laughs> you know, my actions are demonstrating whether or not I'm faithful or not. If I, if I, you know, decide to beat my wife or beat my children, I'm not being faithful. And the way that you know that I'm not being faithful is precisely by what I do. And so any idea that you have, that you can have fidelity or faithfulness or faith, uh, you know, operating in good faith without any, any, you know, sort of notion of works being embedded in that is, it's a, it's a very peculiar thing. I, I think that's a, a very strange way to think. Uh, it's certainly not the way that any, you know, any Jew in the second temple period, like Paul, would ever think. And that's certainly not the argument that he makes. In your opinion, Jason, um, how, how, how accurate is Paul in his, like, does he say anything that you would consider to be not exactly right? Um, I think the idea that, uh, 
Well, I mean, I think there are a number of things that you could you could highlight, but I think uh, a couple of the things that he says in First Corinthians seven um, sort of fall in line here. That uh, you know, I'm I'm a married man. I I think I would tend to differ with Paul that that uh, remaining unmarried is superior, and he does suggest that you know, marriage is kind of a concession. I, that might be something to to challenge there. Um, there uh it depends on if you if you regard uh first timothy as uh as actually written by paul there's several things in there that you could you could look at i'm i'm more uh of the view that that's probably post pauline um yeah there there are there there are several things that you could highlight there as at least questionable uh and i think you know you you can make a case that paul thought that certain things would happen before 2000 years are up that haven't happened. So <laughs> like we, we who are yeah. alive and remain. Yeah. I, th- I think that's actually a little bit overblown because I mean, that's just referring to the people who are alive and Paul's one of them. So, okay. you know, I don't think that means that he specifically expected to remain alive, uh, that he would necessarily be that. I mean, I think you have to read that with something like uh, Philippians where he's contemplating whether he's going to be there or not. Uh, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to die or not, you know, you know, here real soon, but, uh, you know, regardless, it'll come out fine. So I think that's a little bit, a little bit much, but I mean, depending on how you read that, if you read that, if you read that, uh, you know, in a more specific sense of like him expecting to be alive, (laughs) obviously that was wrong. So, yeah, I, I think Paul was a flawed man, just like, uh, just like, you know, anybody else. I think he was an extremely bright man. Um, and, um, you know, brilliant in terms of his, uh, understanding and, uh, grasp of the, uh, of, of the Hebrew Bible and of the, of the Septuagint, uh, but, you know, flawed. Yeah. Uh, so someone, uh, uh, yeah. Kingdom concepts. Why does Galatians make anti-circumcision comments? It also seeds. I know what he's referring to there. As you know, I hear this this argument. Um, heard this argument too that um, there is an argument that people say that Paul must not have known, or if he did, it was kind of a shady way of him putting. You know, uh, God said seed and not seeds. Therefore, one and not many. But if you look at the context of it seed means many if you if you know what i mean like sarah but it also means many for paul he's just making a point that the collective noun is is collectively singular which he then uses as a way to root that in the identity of jesus as the seed through which the the corporate group is you know inaugurated so he and he uses that singular also to tie into the david prophecies and some of these other things so that's just really really elegant and careful exegesis that he's he's using to make a specific point but i, I wouldn't make too much about that i see real truth is citing yeah. uh is citing um that's first timothy so again like i said there's a number of places where if you expand it to first timothy and some of these others you know most biblical scholars don't think that first timothy was written by paul so you know that kind of gets tossed out. There's also, that also doesn't really mean women are saved by having babies. That's not exactly what the passage means, but either way, that passage is a bit of a mess and 
yeah, you can feel free to take an issue with it all you want. Uh, as far as why Galatians makes uh, anti-circumcision statements, Galatians actually says that circumcision is, it, it doesn't actually take a stand against circumcision. It's taking a stand against the circumcision of adults in order to become a part of Israel. And Paul is basically arguing that this is basically going about things the wrong way. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, that a person would need to be circumcised as an adult in order to become a part incorporated in Israel makes some sense. If you read, you know, Genesis 17 from a, a given angle, but Paul basically is arguing that God has already through giving the spirit, incorporated these people in the new covenant so if they're already part of israel and then we have to go and validate their membership in israel by snipping off their foreskin as adults then were they really israelites i mean aren't we just invalidating the work that god has already done and so you know this some of this basically ties to his insistence that what really matters is the reception of the spirit which he identifies as the circumcision of the heart and this is something that God does. And if God does this, and then this leads to the uh, moral transformation that is brought about, that's supposed to be brought about by the Spirit in his reading of the prophets, then any sort of physical circumcision that can be done by people after that is inconsequential, which is why in First First Corinthians, he doesn't say circumcision is bad. He says circumcision is negligible. Like it, it you know, circumcision is nothing and foreskin is nothing what matters is doing the commands of god that's what he says which is really interesting because you could say well but circumcision is one of the commands and i think paul's answer would would be yeah if you're seven days old that tomorrow is going to be circumcision day right mm -hmm. but yeah. if you're an adult and you've already received the spirit it's adiaphora it doesn't matter for you because you've already had the circumcision that counts so I, I don't think Paul would have counseled his Jewish, uh, and I don't think he did counsel his his uh, uh, Jewish followers of Jesus to stop circumcising their eight day old boys. I, I think he would have said, "Yeah, keep going, keep doing that. That's you know that that's a perfectly fine mitzvot, you know, or perfectly fine mitzvah, you know, do it, you know, no no big deal." But don't think that that's actually what cements membership in Israel because membership in Israel has happens through the spirit that's been given through, uh, through Jesus. So I think that's the, that's the point that Galatians is getting at. Here's a question. How long was it before, like, let's say from, from Acts chapter two until the, until Paul came into the scene, how long? Um, I think about three years. It's, it's interesting because I've I've heard any everything from like one year to like fifteen years. Yeah, it definitely wasn't fifteen. Um, we, we we have a good sense of when. So Paul says that he uh, he was let down in a basket from uh, he had to escape Damascus and in a basket from the uh, uh, from the uh, steward of Eratos, uh, who was basically looking for him you know, to do ill, uh, toward him. And so he was, he, he escaped Damascus at that point. Well, that's convenient because Eratos was only essentially, uh, in charge of Damascus in about 36. 
because uh, that was Herod Antipas's territory, and Eratos happens to be the king of Nabatea, which is you know in Arabia to the east of all of that. It's in the Transjordan, and that's an area that Rome did not really control. And Herod Antipas had kind of ticked off the king of Nabatea by divorcing his his wife, and this is the whole Herodias affair, and it led to some issues in the in the mid mid thirties. Uh, so if that's happening. That had to have been around 36. So depending on when you put the death of Jesus, I would put the death of Jesus around 30. Uh, so that means, you know, Paul says that happened about three years after his conversion or after his call, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, after he began to to preach Jesus. Uh, so that would mean that he would have been begun preaching Jesus in like 33-ish. So I think that that gives us a decent area for when he would have started along. So 36 is three years in on his reckoning. So it would have been about three years from the time, let's say Acts chapter two, just like yeah. Acts chapter two, three years until he started preaching. Cause I understand that like he, he spent three years in like, was it? He spent three years sort of back and forth between Damascus and he says he went to Arabia and it seems yeah. he made some trouble there. Enough trouble that when Nabatea takes control of Damascus, where Paul is three years later, that he has to escape. <laughs> so whatever he did in, in, in Arabia made enough trouble for the Nabataeans that they dis, they did not uh, overlook the fact that he was in the in, in the city that they, they were in control of at that time. So he's probably preaching, probably doing something irritating enough. And, you know, from what I can tell from Paul, he was not someone who uh, typically was, who typically had, a, who had a habit of living anywhere quietly. Uh, so, you know, he's not a guy that, that would, would have been easy to live with. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think those three years are being, are, I, th I think he starts preaching and teaching pretty much immediately and, and does most of it in Nabatea or Arabia in those first three years. So the uh, the New Testament church per se did not have Paul for three years. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. So his road to Damascus experience uh, was three years after, you know. That's a, I would say that's probably in the right in the right ballpark. Okay. What about his writings? Um, the dating on his writings. I'm a little bit agnostic on that. I think, uh, you know, there's a, a, a probably the most interesting uh, uh, piece of scholarship on this in terms of the dating of his of, of Paul's writings uh, that's been done in the last couple decades would be Douglas Campbell's uh, book on that. Um, uh, and I think Douglas is mostly right to push some of that earlier. Um, so I, I think Romans, for example, is probably written in the early fifties, the very early fifties, you know, 51 area, uh, Galatians, probably a few months before Romans. Uh, I think most of what we have from Paul is actually from that area where he's, he's basically, basically taking up a collection, uh, in exchange for his churches being able to keep their foreskins. Uh, so he's basically taking a collection back to, to Rome in a, uh, sort of bucks for schmucks kind of, um, uh, arrangement. Uh, and uh, he, um, uh, I think he's writing First and Second uh, Corinthians in the forty-nine to fifty area. 
uh, and then Galatians in that, you know, 50, 51 area and then Romans right, right in there as well. So I, I think the, the majority of the big letters that we have from him are all from like a two year period. And, and the pastoral earlier. epistles, the pastorals. Yeah. So I'm really agnostic for those. I think the pastoral, so I, I, I tend to think that first and second, uh, Timothy and Titus are probably later. Second Timothy might be I, of the three. I think second Timothy seems most Pauline to me. Um, it's not impossible that they would be Pauline, but I lean towards those being later, uh, at, you know, by someone in the Pauline stream after Paul's gone. Um, I, I do think that, uh, that the Thessalonian letters are early, probably in the forties. Uh, and then, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, Philippians is probably in the same kind of area as some of the others. Uh, so, you know, late forties, early fifties area, uh, with then Ephesians and Colossians. I, I think they're probably Pauline. Um, and those could be pretty close to anywhere in his, in his, in his ministry. So, you know, those could be Rome after he's locked up in the mid fifties. Those could be, you know, a little bit earlier, but I tend to think that those are probably a little later. So I would probably put those written either from Caesarea or Rome, you know, after he gets arrested, taking the bucks for schmucks. So you think that the six questionable letters from Paul it sounds like you, you you think that maybe there would be some of them that are actually from Paul. Yeah, I I, I think I I think Second Thessalonians is 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 Pauline, um, and I think uh, Ephesians and Colossians are probably Pauline, and then I'm I'm I fall on the probably not side for First and Second Thessalon or First and Second Tim- Timothy and Titus, but I mean I I'm open to being persuaded that the that First and Second Timothy and Titus are Pauline, but. As of right now, I'd say I'm probably not interested not. in um, what you, uh, what would the reason be? Like, why would they not be? Well, I mean, I think one is that the Greek doesn't read like some of the, like the other Pauline letters. So it doesn't sound the same. Uh, so there's a sort of a taste test in that regard that just doesn't come off quite the same uh that may mean that he's writing with different you know a different co-author or whatever i mean all of his letters you got to remember all pretty pretty close to all of them are co-authored so you know he's got other filters involved uh in some of these cases so that you know that's a factor that you got to consider um i also think that there's some some of the context that the that these letters are actually discussing seems to me to be dealing with issues that come up after 70 uh, and they make more sense in engaging some things that come late. Uh, you know, you have this, this whole like reference to, uh, certain Gnostic type Gnostic sounding things in first, Th- first Timothy that sound like they're later. Uh, there's the reference to the, you know, uh, things, you know, people call, uh, this notion reference to antitheses. It sounds almost like it's, uh, responding to Marcion, which would be really late. So, I mean, there's, there's some things in there that, that seem to me just, they don't quite fit. Uh, it seems more like the, uh, the, the church context that it's assuming seems to be a little bit different. Uh, again, I'm open to being persuaded and I'm not the, I'm not a world's expert on the, on the pastoral epistles, but that's just sort of where I'm, where I'm at at the moment on it. 
So it's not ju- it's not just content. It's like writing style. Yeah, there's there's, more, there's a combination of style, combination of co- combination of style, sort of feel, aesthetics, and then and then content that where the content some of the content feels like it's responding to stuff that's later. Yeah, I see that. For example, in Romans, Galatians, and you know the, the earlier letters, it 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 reads. Paul seems to be more like um, doing this grace versus law kind of thing. I, I know that you know people can they, different. Paul understands the law of, as grace. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> it. I mean, that's Torah, it. Torah is. Torah is part of God's grace to Israel. Like God gave Torah as a, an agent of grace to Israel. I think that's something Paul understands and argues. So good to hear someone say that. I, it's, it's really good to hear someone say that. Um, could it be because, uh, like, could part of the content difference? Um, I know the style, like the writing style is different, like, or the writing style is a different topic, but the content could it be, here's just a question, could it be he decisively decided to write different uh, after his encounter in Acts chapter 21 with James, if you know what I'm getting at? It's it's not impossible, but again, I think the, uh, I mean, again, at that point, you're starting to get to where you're speculating on why someone would do that. And the other thing is, how much does a person's writing style really change in that kind of context? Um, and we're talking about like, you know, what kind of phrases a person prefers or what, you know, uh, what kind of grammatical constructions people are more likely to use. Uh, and I don't think that you just decide like, oh, I prefer, you know, putting my you know, adjectival clauses in this part of a, uh, in, in this, you know, in this form versus this form. I don't think that that's, you know, a change that he would make after an encounter with James, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but again, I think we, we are dealing, if we're going to, you know, address potential differences or reasons for, for stylistic differences, if it is Pauline, I think you have to start with the idea that, you know, Romans, first and second Corinthians, uh, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, all of those are co-written letters, and you know, First and Second Timothy and Titus are not. They're personal letters that are written from Paul specifically to someone else. The only other example of that that we have is Philemon, um, and that is so short that it doesn't give us a whole lot. So, hmm. I mean, you'd have to look at that as like, does Paul write differently if he's writing a personal letter on his own? without this being a corporate, you know, team deal, you know, something that's written on Google docs with, you know, input from his coworkers, you know, that would be where I would start. I want to encourage everyone to go out and buy this book, uh, the idea of Israel and second temple Judaism. So, uh, yes. Uh, and where's the best way they can get this book, uh, Jason? It really depends on people's preferences. Um, I mean, you've got uh, what uh, books? What is it? I mean, Amazon is an obvious place. You can go through uh, uh, Cambridge University Press directly. Uh, you know, uh, 
bookshop.org is, you know, if you, if you don't want to support uh, Jeff Bezos and, you know, the, the whole Amazon machine and you want to go through something a little bit more local bookshop.org is a good option. Um, you know, you can, uh, you can order remotely through uh, uh, landmark booksellers in Nashville, Tennessee, where I know some folks, you know, there's a, the, the book is accessible pretty close to anywhere. Uh, it really depends on where, where you find it best, but um, you know, uh, just appreciate it if anybody does buy it and, uh, and I'll be interested in hopefully, uh, hopefully it turns out fruitful for people to actually, uh, to actually read and, and get something from, uh, I do think that the next book is going to be that much more, um, of interest for this kind of community for sure. Uh, and I cannot wait until that one is out, uh, because that one's going to, going to get to a lot of these, these discussions. So, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So please, everyone listening here, uh, if any of the things that Jason was uh, talking about interests you at all, please make sure you go out and buy it, get yourself a copy of Jason's book. Um, also, like if, uh, we have uh, Jason's official website, jasonstaples.com. Um, is there any other... Um, Avenue, uh, Jason, that you would like to, um, for people to, uh, you know, absorb your content or get a hold of you. Best, uh, best ways are through my, through the website, uh, or, you know, Twitter, uh, I'm accessible there, uh, generally as well. Um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, you know, I've got a page on Facebook as well, uh, an author page, uh, and I'm generally accessible through any of those, um, yeah. So Jason stay at Jason Staples on Twitter, uh, and then, uh, at Jason a Staples, I believe it is on, uh, on Facebook in terms of the uh, author page. So like I said, I'm, I'm accessible. I'm pretty easy to find. So, uh, yeah, uh, accessible though. I can't always answer everything, but I do pretty close to read everything. So. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Um, Jason, I know that you, busy man. And, uh, I really appreciate your, uh, your time and, uh, sharing with us and, uh, sharing your knowledge and your wisdom on these, these, uh, these topics. It's just amazing. And so definitely, uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll have you back. I really appreciate it. And, uh, hopefully next time I can actually uh, be on time. So, uh, thanks again. And, uh, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for, uh, for the invitation and, uh, for, uh, the great hospitality here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. All right. So blessings. All right, guys. So yeah. Um, I know I'm saying this a lot, but you guys need to get a hold of this book. Uh, definitely like it's, it, it is definitely something that I would highly recommend every single person watching here, uh, gets a hold of this. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Um, I know it's a little bit on the earlier side for us. Uh, uh, but, uh, we're going to wrap this up tonight and tomorrow I will be back Lord willing. Okay. At, uh, 2 PM Eastern time, 2 PM Eastern. So, uh, yes. Let's see what we got here. Real truth says Shalom, Jason. Yes. Billy says, I learned a lot tonight. Matthew. 
Bye, Christopher. Thank you for another great stream. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much. I appreciate I appreciate all of you. God bless you. Jamie says, good show, old boy. All right, so. All right. Um, yes. Tanisha says hi. Hello, Tanisha. So, yes, uh, tomorrow. <laughs> Onia, yes. Usually we are only a third of the way through at this point. Yes. Yes, that's true. Um, talk about that. Uh, next month, Lord willing, we'll have Onia with us next month uh, talking about uh, his version of the, of, of the book of Esther. I think it's going to be absolutely amazing. And uh, I know, uh, Onia, for sure at this point in time, probably uh, maybe even less than a third of the way through. I mean, you know, a quarter of the way through by this time. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, who knows? Um, we'll, see what, we'll see what God has in store. Real Truth says, Shalom. And this was great. Yes, absolutely. Vinny says, Thank you, Christopher. Many blessings to everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you very much, Vinny. Uh, Caballero says, uh, very interesting night. I definitely learned something new. Thank you. Good night. Blessings, guys. Thank you very much, guys. I hope, you know, I'm glad that you guys uh, enjoyed what we were talking about uh, today. Yes. And one John says, thanks and good night. Thank you very much, brother. And good night to you as well. Tammy says, this was outstanding. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you very much. Okay, once again, uh, I know there was a lot of things going on here in the chat, and uh, we just couldn't get to them all, but uh, please forgive me. Tomorrow, Lord willing, 2 p.m. Eastern, it's going to be uh, our Shabbat Fellowship, as always. If there's any of you that are listening that uh, uh, you have submitted a question or a comment that you wanted me to address, please, if you will, come back tomorrow, 2 p.m. Eastern, okay? 2 p.m. Eastern, and, uh, and uh, submit your questions, and we'll have some fellowship. And I am planning... I'm speaking about the new covenant. I, I thought it was very, very interesting. And I think it was just a God thing that Jason uh, started out by talking about, you know, Jeremiah 31 and that kind of thing. So we're going to get into that tomorrow. All right. So bring your, bring your friends, um, you know, share, let people know about it. Bring your questions and I'll see you tomorrow afternoon, Lord willing. All right, guys. Real Truth says, Shabbat or Sabbath blessings to all multiplied back to you. Thank you. Uh, Great Deception says, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Yes. Jamie says, Boom. Yes. Sweet. Absolutely. Kingdom Concepts. Amen. Yes. All right. Okay, guys, as always, I pray the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you wonderful, wonderful shalom. See you tomorrow.